Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, Cricket Podcast, the weekly edition. Plenty to cover on the show today. An England selector who got sacked about two hours after we released the show last week. Not very helpfully. Uh, Cricket Australia contracts list, county cricket, uh, nerd pledge, all of the things you might expect. Bangladesh and Sri Lanka playing test cricket. But before we get to any of that, we have to start with the major story of the cricket and otherwise world, uh, what is happening in India um, I suppose taking our interest initially via the IPL, but it's a much, much bigger story than that. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is with me. And, uh, you know, we, a few, few weeks ago, we were just innocently going, oh, let's just do some IPL coverage. It'll be fun. And now it's uh, it's turned into something much more bleak than that. Yeah. Hi, Jeff. That's right. I think it was um, a couple of days ago when we were talking about what we would do around the IPL, those kind of flippant. 10-minute videos we were doing for YouTube didn't feel like such an appropriate thing to be doing anymore, given the the scale of the COVID crisis in India. And I suppose it's been on that trajectory ever since, maybe over the last five or six days, it's become not just an issue that uh, has been talked about in the margins, but a sort of frontline political issue now as well in terms of the the borders that have been shut over the last 24 hours and the players trying to leave. And yeah, it's in full-blown crisis mode. So we've had over 300,000 cases a day being confirmed in India for over a week now, massive medical shortages, a large amount of confusion over the number of deaths being reported and whether that's a, a massive underreporting, and and plenty more besides. So rather than banging on about this ourselves, we decided to talk today with Karunya Keshav, who's a, a cricket journalist as well, um, wrote the book The Fire Burns Blue, which is the, uh, the history of women's cricket in India. A fantastic read, but is obviously much more immersed in, in everything beyond the cricket world as well. First of all, welcome to the show, Karunya. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. I, I guess, first of all, can you tell us about what's going on with you and your situation where you are and, and then more broadly uh, try to give people a picture of what's happening in, in India as a whole. I'm in Bangalore, uh, which is in the south of India. I'm okay, thankfully, and I think I'm really lucky to be able to say that right now. Um, there are cases being reported um, everywhere in the country and I think as of a couple of days ago, Bangalore is the one with uh, the highest number of active cases. So... Um, Testing is being ramped up, so the number of cases is also increasing. But, you know, all these numbers that we've suddenly had to learn, you know, things like test positivity rate and um, mortality rates and then oxygen, these medicines that you apparently need, all of that. There have been desperate calls for all of that, especially on social media, for those that can access social media. Beds are um, in a sh- with, with short of beds, especially beds with oxygen and ICUs. Bangalore isn't too bad in terms of oxygen, but there are places in the country such as Delhi and UP, I understand, uh, I think parts of Gujarat as well that are really struggling for oxygen. So the people that are dying uh, seem to be the ones that 
if things weren't so bad, they would have had that oxygen and they could have recovered. So there's a there's a fair bit of anger that it's just the fact that the administrations were unprepared for this that has brought us to this point. It's that situation that that sort of projection that we we heard being talked about a lot over the last year of um, systems getting to the point where they're overwhelmed, where people who might not ordinarily be at risk end up being at risk. Is is that sort of how it's gone? That's exactly how it's gone. I think the second wave uh, took everyone by surprise. You, you you see the graph, it's not even a gradual rise. It just goes straight up. I think a common term that everyone's using to describe it isn't so much as a wave as a tsunami because it, it's pretty much vertical. A month ago, if we had been having this conversation, it would have been a very different conversation because people were just about venturing out and um, saying, okay, maybe the worst is behind us. But I think everyone was in for a really rude shock. And, and that's sort of, it, it seems so strange at the moment that not long ago we were saying, oh, it's, it's great that there are crowds at the test matches, um, that everybody was out celebrating wholly and, and ha- having a good time. And, you know, it's the the way it was being put across by the political class in India was, you know, we've got this, it's under control, it's all good, it's all done. And then just in those last few weeks, it's it's suddenly become this truly terrifying situation. Absolutely. I mean, there's going to be a lot of time spent wondering what went wrong. And I think everyone has um, a lot of incidents that they'll point to, rightly so. There has been this attempt to sort of shift uh, the blame on people for ignoring the dangers of a second wave to sort of, you know, I think there was this tendency to say that we have the immunity, we somehow got through this, we, um, the the weak West, you know, couldn't handle it, but because of all the, uh, we're just different, we just, we're safe from this. And I think that has been exposed really brutally. I think what we've seen in terms of the last few days, someone like Ashwin coming out and having to tend to his family, I suppose from the outside looking in, we would assume that someone like Ashwin with all of his wealth would be, well, that his family would be almost immune from the consequences of, of COVID because they'd be able to stay at home and, and, and look after themselves and they wouldn't have to worry about the density of the population quite as much. But is it the case that this particular wave has been different in this respect in terms of the types of people in India who've been affected? what has stood out in this wave is that everyone seems to know someone that's been affected by this it's really a lot of this has really hit home everyone has friends if not family if not themselves that has had to deal with this um i'm i honestly don't have the data I i think data is something that has been completely absent in this pandemic at least in india given the amount of conversation of this that has happened on social media you'd presume that the kind of people that do have access to Twitter, to Facebook, to Instagram, they're the ones that that are um, suffering, whose who suffering is being seen in this wave, at least. We had all sorts of studies a few months ago which said a lot of the cases were coming. Uh, in the first wave, a lot of the cases were in the slums. But this time, I saw a figure, again, not confirmed, but uh, saying in Mumbai, most of the cases this time were from the high rises, as much as 90% was from the high rises. So I think there has been this sort of shift in the people affected. And um, I, I think what shocked a lot of people and what has come out, especially in the media, is the fact that 
people who until now were protected from um a system that didn't work have had to face the same thing that maybe you know millions of poorer indians face on a regular basis now no amount of wealth no amount of prestige is really going to save you i mean obviously there are cases of vvips jet setting out of india um you know having their own covid care centers and things like that but people who would generally be able to use their influence almost to get into hospitals and to pay for these hospitals they've had to struggle as well their home as well and you know it takes about 3 4 days before sometimes you get a hospital bed i have to say that there are loads of volunteers doing their bit i think what's been incredible to see is that just regular people pitching in to make phone calls to you know to talk to patients to just sort of figure out what people need to see how they can make that happen whether it's by with food or deliveries or medicines or oxygen um i mean it's a, it's obviously a horrifying situation if you have to go to twitter to ask for oxygen um but that, that's where we are and in terms of how the indian premier league became such a a focus or focal point of, of the discussion around this i mean you wrote powerfully about this yesterday kurnia about your sense that those inside the IPL and those inside the bubble if you like not necessarily the players but people who are calling the shots if you want are operating this competition whilst almost ignoring the struggle of so many people in the wider community with the way they're communicating i genuinely took no pleasure in writing that article it's obviously not something we want to be talking about at all it's the IPL everyone wants to celebrate the IPL mm. um it's it's escapism and that's what we all need especially at this time but i think what's really stood out honestly if the ipl had reacted to the pandemic had sort of realized what it was doing to the very people that are watching the ipl i think it would have had a lot more support today there would have been a lot more willingness among people to say you know we really wish that this could go on things that can go on should go on but the fact that it's only yesterday that they you know that teams actually came out and spoke about you know said we're going to use our, our platforms to do something uh, to, to you know to amplify some of these requests for medicines or oxygen or whatever it is i think that has rankled and that has got a lot of people really upset because <laughs> something that's come out a lot recently is this thing about toxic positivity when people are struggling so much and are having to deal with so much um just telling them to look on the bright side or you know um distract yourself by watching some cricket sure that's valuable and that is helpful but that can't be while almost denying the existence of this whole other thing that is happening as well and that seems to have been a big part of the discourse in india over the last week or so has been certain very powerful and influential people saying oh all this is fine it's under control we'll have this wave dealt with before long we've got these vaccines coming in you know nothing to worry about it's all in hand which just seems genuinely insane like completely divorced from the reality of that i mean what is the feeling at the moment sort of living in the middle of it that uh, of of just how bad things could get or or whether there is a path through it in the relatively recent future or relatively soon uh, approaching future i think the thing about india in recent times and i think it's been the same in many countries 
uh, you have a lot of people really wedded to these ideologies as well so there are a lot of people saying okay let's give the people in charge a second chance no one could have uh, anticipated this no one could have actually prevented this you know however ready we were we couldn't have dealt with this to an extent that is true but there are maybe an increasing section of people who are saying there has to be some accountability fixed to it but it's it's not something where there is consensus yet it makes one think about what needs to happen before there can be that consensus but maybe in the next few weeks or months we could get there yeah and, and as we sort of return to that idea that the players are trying to leave india and the politics of that and we might return to that in an australian context in a moment uh i suppose it's the very idea of the, the competition continuing and it's far from a consensus beyond this. I mean, Gideon Hay wrote this morning about the idea that 30% of global cricket revenues and 60% of Indian sports revenue comes out of the IPL, yet on the other side of the equation, 30,000 Indians have died uh, of COVID since the IPL uh, that we know of. Where's that debate moving? Where's it come from initially? I think maybe a week ago it felt like there was a consensus that, no, no, the cricket's a great distraction. Do you think we've now crossed the precipice and and the consensus is more along the lines of, well, maybe this is a bad idea and we should try and find a way to sort of gracefully end the competition? I think so. I think it has changed in the last couple of days. At least the discourse around it has changed. I don't know if the people making the decisions have had their minds changed. And I, I mean... I can completely see why there would be all attempts made to keep the IPL going. I mean, I'm in this industry, I guess I have, um, you know, I have a stake in it as well to a small extent. If the IPL doesn't go on, it means it means less work for all of us, which given everything that has happened in the last year, obviously isn't great. And I mean, as it's been mentioned over and over again, 30% of global revenues, that, that's a lot. And that's something that can help a lot of people around the world. As I said, I think if the IPL had actually stepped up and said something or done something and committed to something, even just maybe three, four days ago, I feel it might have been a different story. Because, I mean, there has been a discussion about how many resources uh, the IPL is using, you know, in terms of testing, in terms of the ambulance station there. I, I honestly don't know whether getting rid of that will actually make that much of a difference. I'm sure people who know more who are who are on the ground and working on this will be able to better explain that and honestly i guess it's not really for me or for for any of us to sort of make those decisions that you you hope that are people in charge who are able to balance both these um, both sides of this and take the right decision when it comes down to it and i mean i think something we haven't spoken about is the players uh, we've heard a lot from the australian players but we really haven't had a chance other than maybe ashwin to hear what the indian players are saying and that's partly because there is no association, I guess. So I'm sure if a Kohli or someone comes out and says, I don't want to play anymore, then I'm guessing, you know, that would be the end of the IPL. But I don't know, so many of these younger players, I don't know if they really have that option really to to be saying, okay, this is what I'm worried about. I don't know if I can play at this time. Yeah, we, we've certainly seen that even in the last few months, the inability of a lot of players in India to to have the clout to be able to take what would be described as a political stance, even if it's not really politics, you know, they'll be criticised for playing politics. Um, Pat Cummins has come out and 
made a $50,000 donation to with the intention of helping fund oxygen supplies, which is, you know, a, a big move by him. But there's there's still this interesting crossover with the politics where that donation's going to this government fund where private donations get packaged up with the Prime Minister's name on it. And the Prime Minister seems to have his name on a lot of things. So the, they call it the PM Cares Fund. But there's also there are also people reporting on the fact that there's no transparency about where the money is spent that goes into that fund, what it's actually paying for, whether it is paying for what it says it's paying for. So it, it seems like even when it comes to something as simple as humanitarian fundraising, the politics of image presentation of whether this reflects well on the ruling party or not seems to still be a the most central consideration for those in charge more than the actual effect of what their actions are yeah i i'd agree um i mean i think despite all the issues that have been reported with the PM Cares Fund, there is this hope that it still at some point will be used for something good. Uh, maybe just call me an optimist, I don't know. But but yeah, you're right, it is very, it's going to be very difficult to dissociate anything the cricketers do from the political side of things. And I think, uh, I, I, I'm sure eventually we will see a lot of the cricketers come up and do things publicly. We hear a lot of them are doing things in private, which is great. The call in recent times has been for them to actually um, uh, come out with it because, as you said, it it is about the solidarity at this time. But I think when they do come out with it, there will be an element of politics to that as well. Yeah, with Ben Stokes and Sam Billings are also uh, making contributions. I'm sure a number of the other high-paid overseas players will be involved in trying to do something. Uh, there's been that, that urge, I suppose, on social media in the last 24 hours, certainly since Pat Cummins made his announcement. And that's alongside players who have made the call to come home, which is going to be made that much harder, Jeff, on the basis that the Australian government have said there'll be no flights into Australia from India until the 15th of May. Uh, it's already red-listed by the UK, so a whole other group of players won't be able to get back from there. There's been a letter that um, that Pete Lawler from the Australian has accessed a couple of hours ago from the IPL that's gone to the players, the overseas players, insisting that they'll get them home, but I don't quite know how they can make that assurance, Jeff, when um, the government is, is pretty clear that nobody's getting in and furthermore, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, saying this afternoon that the players won't get preferential treatment because it's not an, not an international tour, that they've gone there privately, that it's not under the Australian auspice and, and thus they'll, they'll be given no... Uh, they'll get home no sooner than they, than they otherwise would because they're Australian cricketers. That's quite an interesting development. Yeah, and you can't argue with that um, just just on the basis of somebody being more high-profile. High so in theory, that shouldn't really matter to those players because the blockade is until May 15. The group stage finishes eight days after that um, and the finals don't finish until May the 30th. So as long as it doesn't get extended, they should be able to get back. But they'll be potentially competing for places on commercial flights with other people who need to get Caps. back. Um, yeah, I mean, we saw that from the UK last year. It's still the case that between thirty and 40,000 mm. people can't get in. It might be that they're in this backlog, which we've seen especially from the UK when the travel ban was in position here. Yeah, there'd certainly you'd think be a backlog from India. There's been talk about Cricket Australia chartering a, a flight to get them back. That was um, Chris Lynn raised that and, and got a couple of very unnecessary whacks because what he said was um, a chunk of our pay from the IPL goes to Cricket Australia, which it does. I think it's 20% of, of each wage goes to CA as a thanks for 
creating the players who got bought and he was saying well you know maybe this year we can put that towards getting us home Um, and various people have been saying oh he wants the government to pay for a charter flight which isn't what he said at all so you know there was there was that sort of bit of nonsense but there are the players who've headed back in AJ Ty, Adam Zampa, Kane Richardson, Liam Livingston went back to the UK, Ashwin's pulled out as he said but pretty much everyone else who stayed out of the Australians they've got some reason to do it, I suppose. So Glenn Maxwell and Dan Christian getting picked pretty regularly for RCB. Pat Cummins is key for the Knight Riders. Warner's captaining Sunrise's Hyderabad. Um, Steve Smith and Marcus Stoinis for Delhi. Jai Richardson, Riley Meredith and Moses Enriquez have been getting picked for Punjab Kings and Chris Lynn for Mumbai. So there's only a few sticking around who haven't been getting picked in Nathan Coulter-Nile, Daniel Sams, Jason Berendorf and Ben Cutting are the only ones who haven't been getting game time. But I guess there's a financial imperative as well that as long as you wait out the rest of the competition, you can get your full paycheck for, you know, whereas if you bail out and go home, you don't. Um, and, and I suppose by now it's too late. They're, they're stuck there until what, you know, whatever happens from here happens. Yeah, and seeing some of the reporting uh, from Australia this evening about the trip that, that Zampa and Richardson are trying to make at the moment. No sure thing they'll be able to get where they need to get to in time to, to get under the under the tripwire, I suppose, with respect mm. to um, that ban from India, which complicates matters yet further. Karunya, in terms of the reputational side of things, we've seen really positive comments about Ashwin and about the foreign players who have made the call to leave so far. But for these mid-tier players who... Um, who could, it could go either way whether they get picked up again. Might there be that implicit pressure that they'd be well served staying around and, and helping keep the competition going at this time? Otherwise, they, they might find themselves on, on the wrong side of the auction in, in sort of 12 months' time. I, I genuinely don't know. I think what has come out uh, through this whole issue is that everyone has been making their own risk assessment, uh, which constantly changes given the amount of information that comes and goes. So I'm sure it's going to be a different thinking for someone at the start of their um, career versus someone later on depending on you know how, how uh, what their family is going through I, I understand Dhoni's parents also tested positive I presume he I, I, again not to uh, not to make assumptions here but evidently he presumed that they they are going to be safe uh, given the support system they already have and he doesn't need to be there Ashwin meanwhile you know made a completely different call for a, a seemingly similar reason and I don't think it's fair to judge any of those. It's just what everyone, um, it's just the risk assessment that everyone wants to do. But definitely, if you're one of the younger players, I think you're looking to your seniors to be making a lot of these calls and helping you make these calls. I don't know if it's going to be a question of, uh, you know, will I get selected next year? But I think everyone just really wants a chance so they're probably willing to stick around for it we know it's a very trying time at the moment so karunya kashav thanks very much for making the time to talk to the final word thanks guys thanks to karunya her book is the fire burns blue a history of women's cricket in india written with sedanta patnaik our colleague who sadly passed away uh, a couple of years ago so it's a, a great read they were very, very passionate about that subject, both of them, um, and we miss Sid a lot. Mm. The other question, I guess, Adam, coming out of what happens with the IPL is what happens with the T20 World Cup. It's almost May. Uh, that will come up in October. It's very soon. India is in all kinds of strife at the moment. Um, you would think that there'd be a natural stubbornness 
on the part of the BCCI and, and probably on the part of the BJP as well, the ruling political party, that it would be uh, it would look bad for them politically to allow the tournament to be moved elsewhere. That you know that would be admitting that there was something wrong. Mm. But you you think the logical thing to do would be flip the order again. You've got two T20 World Cups. The one next year is supposed to be in Australia. The one this year is supposed to be in India. Swap them over, given that in Australia you could actually have crowds at the cricket. You've got no community transmission, really, aside from a couple of isolated cases. I suppose there are the complications about getting all of those teams into Australia with quarantine and so on, but that would likely be the case wherever they went. They'd have to quarantine to get into a bubble, you know, to to make a biosecure bubble, I suppose. Um, And so that's one that'll be talked about. Yeah, it feels like we've, we're in a time machine here, doesn't it? Back 12 months as far as all the different challenges for putting on a global event right now. I know in terms of the Tokyo Olympics, those very same conversations are being had. So that it's almost like a two-speed or multi-speed economy situation where everybody from the UK who could possibly be involved in a T20 World Cup will have double vaccination jabs by then, no mm. question. There's certainly no guarantee of that in Australia alone, let alone the, the, the players who will be coming in um, for such a tournament if they did reschedule it so yes my first impression is that that's a very logical thing to do it should have been this way all along uh, we talked about that at great length last year mm. it was a flex from the BCCI to make sure um, that they got the tournament this year which is what their preference was uh, and that Australia would go back in the pecking order and that concession was made accordingly but now based on the current situation it's impossible to imagine isn't it that in a few months time when they have to start getting people ready to ramp up for the T20 World Cup in September and October it'll be with without this extraordinary, vicious second or third wave, whatever they're calling it at the moment in India, it'll still be part of the, the, the country. I can't fathom this. It doesn't seem to be truthful to imagine that it won't. So maybe Australia or maybe the default option, which has been the case at different times around the world in the last 15 years when a country has been unavailable to host, uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, who have uh, been hosting multilateral tournaments in, in recent times, of course, held the IPL uh, back in October last year. So it might be that they're asked to fill the breach mm. at short notice. But yeah, I think that there'll be health considerations, but there'll absolutely be political considerations. Uh, that's coming through loud and clear about everything we're seeing around the IPL at the moment. Yeah, political and financial considerations uh, yeah. will seem One to be the, same. the main thing. You know, I, I guess that one factor is that if if India really get on a, a kind of wartime production level of vaccines and distribution, then they might be able to you know, vaccinate a, a huge number of people by then. But they have such a vast population to begin with that even a, a huge operation is inevitably going to leave a, a lot of people on the wrong side of that ledger. So, And look, and if they can do that, that'd be fantastic. But I don't think they can wait till, say, they can't wait until September to make a decision mm. about a tournament that's going to start To see, if it's, in. see yeah. if it's looking good. That's right. Stick your yeah. finger and stick it out the window and say, oh, it doesn't feel very COVID-y out there. And that's exactly what happened last year, right? So last year yeah. when we were having similar conversations, it was like, well, let's not leave it to the last minute. Let's, let's make the call now. Mm. I suppose another scenario is the tournament doesn't go together at all. And they pull the plug on the whole thing. But then the financial considerations for that are so considerable for all the full member nations that I'm sure they'll find a way to the the start line. I I don't know what it'll be, but that's that's going to have to be sorted out fairly soon. Yeah, cash for the ICC um, 
which really means cash for the few biggest countries will be the biggest consideration. Uh, if you can put it on TV, people will watch it. But, but also, but also the smaller nations too. I mean, just, just to be clear about this, like, yes, that, that that will be doubtless, and it always is at ICC level about the, the cut of the money the big nations get. But the smaller nations too, that's their mm. lifeblood, the, the distribution they get from major tournaments. So if you're a Zimbabwe, for example, to use the the example mm-hmm. of the, the least wealthy member. Uh, nation, it's in your interest, even if they're not going to be at the tournament, it's in their interest that goes ahead yeah. somehow. Yep, yep. It's, it's got to be able to make it happen. But the way things are looking in Australia with uh, limited quarantine capacities and limited yeah. ability of people to get into the country, suddenly getting, what, 16 teams and all of their retinues into the country and into quarantine for the right period of time might be impossible as well. Maybe it's back to Dubai. Oh, uh, yeah. Love it, love it. Love to get back to Dubai. I'm sure they'll welcome us with open arms. Um, <laughs> We we should move on to the Cricket Australia contract lists. This was another interesting bit that came out during the week. So they've gone with the, the minimum number, which is 17. The way this sort of used to work was CA would contract about 25 players um, and then they started contracting lower numbers, but you can still earn a contract if you play enough matches for them over the year. And it's not that many I think from memory it might be like if you play four test matches you get a contract I think it's if three you play, yeah if you play you know six white ball games or something like that you'll you'll get upgraded to have a contract so you know Ashton Turner got one after his adventure at Mahali when he played a few T20 games after that for instance that sort mm-hmm. of thing <laughs> so at the moment I mean the easiest way to think of it is roughly the sort of test regular players who are Steve Smith David Warner Manus Payne Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins, Lyon, so the main four bowlers, the keeper, and then three specialist bats, so they're a bit short of an 11 there. There's kind of the mostly test reserve players in Alex Carey, Cameron Green, and James Pattinson, and then there's the T20 specialists who are there for that T20 World Cup in Finch, Agar, Maxwell, Jumping Jai, and Kane Richardson's, and Zampa. So some interesting... Omissions there, Travis Head not there, Matthew Wade not there, Joe Burns, Will Pekofsky, Marcus Stoinis, Mitchell Marsh, sort of the notable ones who've been prominent in one way or another in, in recent times, but you know they do have the opportunity to earn contracts by getting picked and staying in the team. Yeah, and by definition, that has to be the case because you look through the, the test batsman list there there's not six so they're going to be yeah. uh, they're going to be issuing incre- incremental contracts uh, per what you said there so as i understand it they could have given out 20 and they've gone with 17 they scaled back the contracts a couple of years ago so and yeah you can see the inherent logic of uh, making players who've been on the periphery have to earn their contract by performance that that stands to reason i think mm-hmm. however there there are there are some exceptions to that so take Mitchell Schwepson who's had the the best shield season of his career he'll be very much in contention for the myriad um, asia tours that take place in early 2022 and beyond um, presumably he'll be in the squad the whole way through like Michael Nisa has been for the last two years and mm-hmm. he was nowhere near a contract seemingly here on the basis that, I mean, they seem to have front-loaded the T20 team with the T20 World Cup coming up, thus Agar, thus Kane Richardson, thus Adam Zampa, mm. ahead of players who, who might have a, a chance for test selection. And then there's Will Pekofsky. Uh, Jared Whateley uh, did an editorial on his show today about, uh, about Pekofsky and sort of uh, looking at it a few days hence. And his perspective was that when Pat Cummins was a young player with a lot of injury concerns, he never had to worry too much about his status or his place in the pecking order because mm. he kept getting a CA contract. And whether that might have been 
something that they consider with Pekofsky, given that, yes, he, he's working through his shoulder reconstruction at the moment, and Trevor Haynes talked about that in the media conference on Friday, but also well-documented mental health problems over the, over the journey so far, the fact mm. that he's had so many concussions. The idea that if you just tell this young bloke at He's 23 years of age now. You are going to be uh, part of the Australian setup this year. You don't need to worry about it. Just focus on getting right for you know the first test mm. match at Brisbane or wherever it's going to be against England. That might serve him well. It could be a, a good long-term investment. But, yeah, I thought, yeah, Pekofsky and Swepson stood out to me in that respect because all the other players you note there, with perhaps the exception of Joe Burns and, and Matthew Wade, will play. Uh, and even Matthew Wade, he, he's the vice-captain of the T20 side at the moment. So the fact that we're coming into a T20 World Cup, he will get a contract incrementally as will Mitchell Marsh who's had the best white mm. ball year of his life really for Australia Marcus Stoinis in the T20 World Cup so it really does come down to Joe Burns who, who's kind of really out of it and whether Travis Head can get himself back in the test team and this is the curse of the vice captaincy isn't it since yeah. Justin Langer took over we've had the revolving door of vice captains where I mean, Mitchell Marsh has been one of them uh, there was obviously Josh Hazelwood who's in the team but no longer vice captain uh, and now Travis Head who did have the, the chance to establish himself and make himself the next skipper and now out of not only the team mm. but out of the contract list as well well he captained the side in that tour match against India at mm. Tramoyne mm. Oval when Payne Tim Payne was in the side Travis yeah, that's right. it as a marker and now is there without a contract so you know I suppose they've got four test bats really because they'll definitely play Cameron Green at six so there's only two spots there yep. Yep. whether whether Travis Head gets that spot or Kerry. Five. And I mean, the fact that Kerry's whether reserve, that's this, Kerry, that's, this comes back to yeah. what you and I talked about at length when they announced that South Africa squad, whether they've actually made subtly a call here that we're just not picking up on that they want Alex Kerry to play test cricket. Long term, he's Payne's natural successor with the gloves, we assume. Mm. And whether the way to integrate him in is to say, well, look, you're, you're going to play in the summer and you're, and you're a nationally contracted player and you'll get that opportunity. I suppose time will tell, but he did have a good shield season. That's a bit of an ask, though, to say your first test is against England at the Gabba. Um, you know, no pressure, champion. Have a good one, True. Uh, True. because he's not he's not going to be in the T Twenty side, presumably. Alex Carey, he's a very good T Twenty player, but if they've got Wade there keeping, if they've got Philippi there as a, a backup keeper, Carey's unlikely to be in that squad. And I guess I should know the answer to this question, but I'd be curious to know what happens financially if you're, say, Stoinis or Mitchell Marsh, where you're presumably in the T20 World Cup squad, but you, you're there without a contract and you're not getting picked to play games, so you're not getting match fees or building up to an incremental contract if you end up doing a Moen Ali and sitting on the bench for the whole thing. What happens to you financially there? Do you just get a per DM and, a, you know, here's your, here's your 300 bucks a day or whatever it is, thanks for coming? Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, I would imagine the ACA wouldn't stand for that, so I'm sure yeah. there, there, are, there are provisions built in. Yeah, and I still think there is a, a chance that Kerry ends up being part of that T20 squad for the World Cup. I, I mean, I know he, he was essentially jettisoned after what happened in England last year and, and he was in the test squad so he couldn't be part of the New Zealand squad thus uh, Philippi gets his opportunity but I reckon in a World Cup they'll be inclined to go with his experience. I mean time will tell but it stands to reason why he's got a contract in any case. Yeah but look he wasn't part of things over the home summer when they played India and that seemed pretty telling. They had Wade doing the keeping there and you know Kerry was, was sort of ODI only so I'm not sure if maybe they've just moved Beyond him at the moment. Who, who um, was keeping? Who, who was Wade or Philippi keeping in the New Zealand T20s recently? That might be instructive. Um, I am struggling to remember that. I think Wade was. Yeah, right. For the right. most part, Wade was, and Philippi was batting three, so Wade was opening. So 
Yeah, he'd probably be a, maybe carries ahead of Philippi in some sort of pecking order, but yeah, he'd had some opportunity in that side. And it's your curse of the vice captains again as well, because he was he was VC of that T Twenty side, wasn't he? He was, yeah, he was that until was very out. recently. I think he was until mm-hmm. Pat Cummins became the the, the three format vice captain. But still, you're right; like he's had that maybe, role in the last couple. Maybe of years. it's ever since. Maybe David Warner with the sandpaper business put a curse <laughs> on the position of Australian vice captain. <laughs> and now anybody who occupies the Australian vice captaincy, something bad, something wicked this way comes. And, and the only way it can go full circle is when Steve Smith's mm. appointed vice captain, as we were recommending oh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. You see? Yep. You see? See? Yep. Some sort of moment, like a, a shaft of bright white light comes down from the sky and oh, every, everything is cured. <laughs> I thought that was interesting during the week as well in that Trevor Hines press conference that they acknowledged that they got it wrong towards the end of the India series by not rotating the fast bowlers. And that was uh, him laying a preemptive uh, marker for the summer that's upcoming. So, yeah, it's going to be complicated by the fact that there, mm. there will be a T20 World Cup of some variety before the Ashes. We don't know where, we don't know how, yeah. but they'll get it done, I'm sure, per the discussion we had before. Then into five, more or less back-to-back Ashes test matches, a lot of travel between times, probably some version of quarantine. And Hones's view was that they might have pulled the wrong rein by not including mm. uh, Michael Nisa um, for that final test match. He didn't say it expressly, but that's that's how it was positioned uh, in the reportage. So but they didn't they didn't rotate the fast bowlers in the last home ashes when they beat up England 4-0. They had one but I injury think that's, but I think that's the point. in the fourth th- test. Yeah, but I think that's the point, is that they've taken that model from 17-18, the big three, if you like, and and, co- and line to complement that, and they've stuck with that, and it's not worked. It's been, uh, overall, not a successful strategy, just set and forget. Um, it didn't work in, in 2018 against India, when you would think that it was still coming Stark and Hazelwood. I mean, that, yeah, sure, it was the batting where they were weakened without Smith and Warner, but um, their bowling um, wasn't able to take the 20 wickets they needed week after week. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the same this time around when they when they couldn't make it work on the final day at Sydney and, and then Brisbane. So just sort of planting a seed that in the Ashes series, it'll, it might mm. be more like it was in 2019 in England where five fast bowlers were used. So it could be where Pattinson uh, gets that chance. I know Pattinson wasn't available for the last couple of test matches against India after that fall we took it home, but Nisa was there. So whether those two could round out the attack uh, against England, it'll, it'll, it's a bit of a watch this space. Mm. Pattinson and Siddle for the MCG. That's oh, the campaign. Get it good. going. <laughs> I, open up on Boxing Day. <laughs> Can yeah. the Vicks get Peter Hanscom back in the team? Uh, probably, maybe don't do that. Let's, let's play a little game before the halfway mark. The game is called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is pronounced Nerd Pledge. That's how you say it. It's That's the law. Better. It's the law. It's now a law. You've got to say it that way. It's the game we play with the people on our patron page because we make two shows a week and they take quite a long time and people help us uh, pay for doing that by sending us small contributions uh, and occasionally large contributions, but small ones are fine. And the small ones are, uh, or the large ones, are generally a number that's not a normal currency number, but it's a cricket number in disguise and we have to work out what the cricket number is. We don't know. The person who sent it knows. Uh, This number is a double header, so there are two people who sent the same number, possibly for different reasons. Their names are Iranda Jayavikrama and Anna Collins. The number they've both sent is $4.55, or in Anna's case, £4.55. In any case, 4.55, which could mean 45.5, could mean 455, it could mean 0.455. We don't know. Some version of that. But this, this is what we're going to have to figure out. 
Right, I feel settled. I feel like I know the, the rules of mm-hmm. the game. Uh, I've been briefed accordingly. There's a clue from Aranda, uh, and that is as follows. Aussie shines on my old high school ground. Also, mm. what happened to him? Question mark. So a little bit cryptic, but we know it's to do with a high school ground and an Australian. <laughs> Jeff, bit of a tongue twister there. Yeah. Go for it. Well, I, I'm taking this to mean an Australian who didn't play much more, you know, who, like, where are they now kind of scenario. Okay. Um, oh, they opened up a milk bar in Queensland. Let's go and visit them. Now, Aranda Jaya if I remember rightly, um, and this is, a you know, using a special power I like to call patron recall, where I'm like, who is this person and where are they from? I'm pretty sure he lives in the U.S., and I, I'm going to take a, a wild stab here and say that Aranda Jayavikrama is a Sri Lankan name, uh, and so maybe this relates to Sri Lanka originally. So this is where I'm going with this, a, a ground in Sri Lanka that was also used by a high school. There are a couple because the Moratua game, uh, ground rather, which has a great name of the Tyrone Fernando cricket ground. Can you hear the drums, Tyrone Fernando? That had a couple of internationals and and is mainly used as a school ground. But the main one is the ground that they used to use at Candy. So these days when they play up that way, they play at Pelicale International Sports Stadium. But they used to use the Ascaria Stadium in Candy itself. It was a more old-fashioned kind of, um, you know, nice-looking proper cricket ground rather than a stadium-type thing. And, And where I'm going with this is that, you know, this is where games in Candy were played. And the number is 4.55. And I think if we look at this as a bowling analysis, now I I know that Andy Caddick took four for 55 there in a test match in 2001. Okay. And Andy Caddick is not English. Uh, It's not Australian. He is English. So he's not the person. But what I think may have happened here is that if you look at good bowling figures on this ground, the very next entry after Andy Caddick came a couple of years before Andy Caddick's four for 55, and it was when Colin Miller in 1999 took four for 62. And that's in the very famous test match where Steve Waugh broke Jason Gillespie's leg using only his face in true Steve Waugh style. Commonwealth Games silver medalist Steve Waugh uh, <laughs> with, with the very tough face that, that he had. He's like, yeah, I'll break your legs with my face. I don't care. So in this game, Australia got bowled out for 188 and then Miller took this four for 62 in order to keep Sri Lanka to just a small lead. But those players were injured during that innings and so Australia got bowled out cheaply as they only had nine batsmen. Sri Lanka out to chase 95. Miller, for a bit, seemed like he might get a ridiculous win for Australia because he took three wickets. He knocked over Jaya Surya, Kalavatarana and Jaya Wardner at the top and kept them in it for a while, but eventually Sri Lanka chased that four wickets down. So four for 62 is not 455, but it is the entry under four for 55. And I just reckon that Aranda might have read a list a bit wrong and seen the four for 55 and thought it belonged to Colin Miller, (laughs) not Andy Caddick. So that is my answer because everything else fits. Everything else fits. He's an Australian who didn't play much, played, what, 21 tests, Colin Miller, something like that. Sounds um, right. Played for a couple of years, was test player of the year for 2000, 2001, and then vanished, moved to Nevada, uh, to, to Las Vegas, if you want to know, Aranda. So you could pop by and visit Colin Miller. That's where he is now. And um, no one's heard much uh, really from him about cricket since. Except for us on The Greatest Season It Was. Had a fantastic conversation with Funky uh, when I was in hotel quarantine myself in Perth last year. He was not that difficult to track down 
because uh, Jay Mueller, our producer, had his phone number. So we got hold of him quite quickly. It took a while to set the interview up. He works in uh, security now in Las Vegas. He moved there with his wife, uh, who he met, I think, on the 2001 Ashes Tour because uh, he was on that trip. He went to India and played the last test in uh, in Chennai in that incredible series. Went along to England but didn't play apart from a couple of the first-class games. Returned to Australia and played the 2001-2002 Shield season and gave it away uh, shortly thereafter. But had an amazing career when you consider that he went from England to Australia, played club cricket and Shield cricket back and forth for like 20 years. Uh, and that's where he learned how to become an off-spinner. For five years, he bowled in the nets at club level mm. in England to teach himself how to do it before rolling it out in the Shield season of 97-98. I reckon he took I reckon he took 60 wickets in that Shield campaign, or near enough to it. It's one of the mm-hmm. uh, most productive hauls ever in, in that competition to get himself kind of from nowhere into the test team. Uh, and, yeah, that's where he stayed for three years and probably should have played a lot more. I think every bowler, every player, everyone who watched the 0-1 series, including Damien Fleming, who, who played as the third seamer in the first test, now declare that, that Funky should have been part of it alongside Warren for all three test matches. But wasn't to be. I mean, the only other thing I would say is that Andy Caddick, he wasn't English either. He's a Kiwi. Um, true. So Originally. Uh, originally. So that, that But he did be... play many, many matches for England. I think it's fair no, to say right. that he was an English cricketer. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. Absolutely. Yeah, no, <laughs> He's got I... a fucking pavilion named after him at Somerset. <laughs> I think he was Who English. Doesn't? Who doesn't have a pavilion named after him at Somerset? There's about four of them. Okay. Well... Uh, Aranda, let us know if we've got there on Funky Miller. I get to have a free swing on Anna Collins, don't I? Because there's no clue. So let's have a try at this. Well, I'll start with a few cap options. There's Manus. So it could be a straightforward one. It could just simply be the case that Anna Collins is a Manus Ultra. And why wouldn't you be, uh, given his body of work hmm. over the last couple of years? If, if you've ever kept a toaster sandwich in your pocket, you know where your loyalties lie. <laughs> He's currently um, uh, waiting to find out whether he can play this week for Glamorgan. Uh, saw Marty Smith writing about this, that the regulations in Wales are different to what they are in England at the moment about exemptions. And the county championship, per George de Bell's reportage last night, isn't declared elite sport because, and this is this is a, a complicated bit of terrain, but it's to do with the idea that it's a four-day game and not a short, sharp game. And they were providing exemptions for people to fly into the UK for a, for a quick event and fly back out again. But four-day mm. cricket obviously isn't that. So it might be the case that Billy Stanlake, King of Geelong, can't play for Derbyshire mm. this week while he still has to complete the rest of his quarantine. In the very same way, I should say, that, that Peter Hanscom did last week before turning out for Middlesex. But it might be that... That, um, that Marnus in Wales, in Cardiff, as distinct from, from England, can get it on the park this week. Mm. Time will tell. Keep an eye on that one. The silent W finally comes through for somebody. <laughs> uh, Chris Old uh, wore cap 455 for England. Martin Moxon made 455 test runs. Uh, I see in terms of team tallies, that's what... Australia made most recently in Lahore in 1994. That was the Phil Emery test match where he made eight not out, retired hurt and came back in and was the not out man. But, Jeff, I suppose for our final word interest, it was Michael Bevan's highest score in test cricket, which was 91 mm-hmm. out of the 455 in a, in a high scoring draw. It's what England's women made in the second of the test matches they played against South Africa at Taunton in 2003. The only reason I note that is that they had a two-test match series against South Africa. I mean, you know, it's not as though test cricket's never been part a of the offering. second test. I know. A second test how did for they do ladies. It? How did they possibly... Oh, how did their delicate constitutions <laughs> stand up to the rigours? I mean, all they can do... All they do is, like 
produce entire human beings inside their bodies and fire them out. Like if they played cricket for multiple days, twice in a row. Yeah, they, trust they me. Played t- they played <laughs> trust me, I've five. seen it. It's full on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Yeah, they, they played two in 05 in the women's ashes that year and I think that was the last two test series. So I just thought that was of note. Claire Taylor made one of her four test centuries in that innings of 455 for England's women. She made four test tons in 15 tests, so a great conversion rate when it comes to that measure you love so much, Jeff. Tons to 50s, four centuries and two other scores above 50 for Claire Taylor. I know we're currently looking at four for 44 in the revisits on the Storytime show. Mm. So 4 for 55, I thought I'd check that out as well. It was taken only once before 1969 and then 52 mm. times since, which I, I suppose can be accounted for what? on the basis that it's an analysis you often will see in, in 50 over cricket, 4 for 55 off, off 10 overs. Oh, that's in all international. all international. Yeah, yeah. So before 1969, of course, mm-hmm. there wasn't one day international cricket. Yep. And last but not least, my last offering for this is that it's what the Dazzler, Darren Stevens made uh, in round one of the, County Championship. He, the team made 455 and he was unbeaten on 116 oh. playing against North Ants. I doubt that Anna um, put this pledge in, even though it's in pounds. I doubt it came in uh, in the no. last few weeks, though. So it it's probably not that. Darren Stevens, but um, we have been talking about him on the show a lot lately. So there's a, a slew of options for Anna. Let us know if we're right. And if we're wrong, we can revisit it on Storytime on Saturday. Right. Let's talk about things that happen once a month and then we'll be back to talk about Ed Smith, the Commonwealth Games, county cricket, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the best cricket shot we ever saw. And uh, that's about it. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Jeff, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see me holding up one of the two editions I have of the Wisden Almanac 2021, the 158th version of it. Stuart Broad's on the front wearing shirt number 638, a photograph of him in Mm -hmm. the mask that he was wearing last year, the face mask, as was the custom, as was the law. And as a consequence, Lawrence Booth decided to put it on the front of the good book, a book that we talked about in great depth two weeks ago when Mm -hmm. the editor Lawrence uh, came on and told us all about it. And we want to reinforce the message that it is the best book in the cricketing world and that by being a loyal listener to The Final Word, you can Mm -hmm. get this book for a radically reduced price. Whether you're in the UK as a subscriber or whether you're in Australia and the US where the book is yet to be released... Mm-hmm. Uh, as is the quirks of publishing. You know, books get put out in one country at one time and another country at another. You'll be mm-hmm. able to get hold of that for a very healthy discount. If you're watching the video, you'll notice that I'm holding up a giant magnifying glass um, <laughs> because I don't have a copy of Wisdom to hand and thus can't hold it up. But I wanted to hold up something. This is a giant magnifying glass that belonged to my grandmother um, who struggled to read documents and thus had a magnifying glass with a built-in torch which no longer works. She may have needed it for the almanac. I'm going to pull open a random page and see what I find out of the book and see whether she would have needed the magnifying glass. Right. Well, there is some very small text in there at times when you're looking at, say, scorecards and and that sort of thing. Um, And so this would have been super handy for poring over the almanac. But you can see, I'm holding it up to the camera right now, you can see how magnifying that actually is. Because if I get up that close jesus that's terrifying for you <laughs> if you've stayed this far through the video then then well done you are braver than i well here is page 972 which i'm going to just display to the mm-hmm. to the camera again and it can just hold it up to your ca- hold it up to your camera so i can see it and then oh, I'll yeah, see on the zoom camera so you'll, you'll see it through zoom through the magnifying oh, yeah. glass that works perfectly most runs in a day 
DG Bradman. No, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't ruin it for yourself. I'm going to quiz you within the show on a few of these categories. I think you know most of these. And if you don't, I'll be kind of pissed off. Okay. Who scored the most runs? This is on 973. In test cricket, most runs scored off and over. Who is it? Uh, Brian Lara and George Bailey, 28 runs apiece. Very, very good. Rome wasn't built in a day, but one man made 300 runs in a day. Who was that? Uh, That was... Charlie McCartney. Are, you, are we talking test cricket? Test cricket. Charlie McCartney didn't uh, play one day cricket either, for, for the record. <laughs> no, no, I thought you meant first class. No, this is test cricket. In a, this, this is test 300 cricket. In a, uh, Bradman scored 300 in a day. He did indeed. 309 of the best at Leeds in 1930. Uh, who scored the fastest test 100 by balls? We were there. Uh, Brendan McCullum off 54 deliveries. And the fastest half century by balls. We were commentating it off your television. Ms. Bar uh, Ulhaq off 21 deliveries. You get all of this right? in the Wisdom Almanac. You get everything in this yes. book. In terms of the writing in here, it's second to none. As Lawrence explained, they had more room, fewer pages. So you compare this to, okay, let's see if this works. I've got 2010 underneath here. It's propping mm-hmm. up my computer. So if mm-hmm. I pull that down and I can put them side mm-hmm. by side. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, it is reasonable to say that 2010 was a lot thicker than 2021, but thickness doesn't necessarily reflect quality mm-hmm. and it's not all about girth it's not all about that and in 2021 as we galloped through with Lawrence a couple of weeks ago the the quality of writing here is exceptional the, the issues tackled are important that's the other thing like it isn't kind of a case of oh let's commission some essays about David Warner's cover drive and let's pop that up the front no that that's mm. not what that's not what Lawrence is doing he's going what are the issues that are going to stand the test of time where do we need to lay a marker mm-hmm. and especially with COVID nineteen uh, ravaging last year's season and and everything mm-hmm. else for that matter and the Black Lives Matter movement receiving yep. so much attention inside the game uh, it was the right time to tackle those two topics and he did it superbly or they did it superbly across the board so brilliant writing and a chance to read all of that and when you get deeper into it in, in the fine point in the fine the, the smaller font you can get Jeff's um, grandmother's um, microscope out and, and that'll do the job for you Jeff's grandmother's microscope it's the name of my novel the, the sequel to the it might be the name might be daughter. the name of this week's show that, that might be a contender mm. Anyway, we'll see. Right. We'll see. see. How do we see if so, you remember it? So, in terms of the offer, there's two sides to this. There's the UK bit. Why don't you do it? You yep. tell everyone how we do it. You're better at this than me. All right, this is easy. If you and and I'm sorry, we only have this for three countries, but that's what we're given. Please, sir, can I have some more? We don't have any more countries. Wisdomalmanac.com slash 2021. You go there if you're in the UK and you can subscribe to it at a very cheap rate, or you can buy it direct for 35 pounds. If you go anywhere else it's 55 pounds that's a large number of pounds that you don't have to pay that you could keep to do something else with like buy several pints to drink while you read the wisdom almanac or perhaps an oversized magnifying glass with which to read the wisdom almanac if you want this one i'll sell it to you for 20 pounds the other thing you can do if you're in australia or america is just go to the bloomsbury website uh, that's the publisher and find the almanac and when you go to the checkout you put in this code wa30 and that's the code because wa stands for wisdom almanac and 30 stands for 30 percent off don't put in wap30 that means something else wa30 think of it as half of a postcode we'll put it in the show notes anyway so you don't have to remember any of this but just read the text under the episode description and you'll find all of this there other points to note is there's a thing called the Shorter Wisdom, which is like an e-book where you can just get the writing. If you don't want to get 
if you don't want to have it on your shelf, if you're not that kind of cat, if you don't like collections, I mean, I love collections and that's why my house is littered with wisdoms, but you may not be built that way and that's fine as well. Shorter wisdom is really good. It's like an ebook where um, it gets set straight to your iPad. You don't have to wait until August or whatever it is in Australia for that. You can get that in your hand immediately or anywhere else in the world. So jump on wisdomalmanac.com.au forward slash 2021. Look in the show notes for all the offers and thanks to the Almanac for being a fantastic supporter of The Final Word again in 2021. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, the second half. Ed Smith, England selector, uh, is no longer Ed Smith, England selector. It's just Ed Smith, comma, open space, a blank space. 7pm last week, the announcement came from nowhere. Uh, Not a sacking as such because the position has been liquidated. There is no England selector anymore. All of the selection issues or, or choices for squads will be concentrated in the hands of Chris Silverwood, the most powerful man in cricket. James Taylor, who was previously sort of the Christmas elf of selection, is now going to be the head scout instead of being a selector. So he's going to go and look at cricketers and tell Chris Silverwood things about them and Chris Silverwood will choose them. This doesn't just come out of nowhere, Adam. Like it was a surprise, but this must have been backed by people. Have you got much of a sense, given you're in England, have you been talking to anyone and kind of got a bit of a timeline on how this came about and where the push was coming from, that we don't want selectors anymore, we're just going to get rid of them? It's like, don't tell mum the babysitter's dead, you know, (laughs) kids run wild, no more selectors, throw them out the window, selectors are chunk, out they go, (laughs) Clem Hill's day has come at last. How did this come about? Yeah, look, I mean, a little bit of reading the tea leaves involved in all of this, but as far as the announcement itself, the fact that it went out at 7pm was interesting. Uh, It would suggest that somebody had the yarn, right? If you're putting a story out at 7pm, it means that someone else has got it and you're you're putting out a media release to make sure that everybody gets ahead of that. Yeah, which is is a a tried and true comm strategy. So I think that might be the basis of why we, we saw it come out so late and so suddenly. And yeah, Ed Smith... No longer a selector, but I'm sure will continue to be a thinker, writer on the game and everything else for that matter. When he was appointed, it was with a view to incorporating data in a more formal way into the selection process for he had been involved in, in T20 leagues and paid a lot of attention to that side of the game and if anything the way they've announced his departure is, is like wanting to take that further so the analysis was that they have access to better information than ever before more live streaming for example of county cricket which I mean yes three years ago that existed with two stationary cameras but that kind of wider canvas I suppose of covering domestic mm. cricket that they have these scouts already in position so James Taylor goes from being the the number two selector to the chief scout and he'll have a team that work with him in terms of being actually at games so yeah in some respects it makes sense to eliminate the position because it feels like an antiquated idea that there's sort of one selector who decides who lives and dies and you know what they will see at any given moment you know you have the old-fashioned kind of idea that well the selectors are here today the chairman of selectors is here today you better perform well Mm. does that mean as much as it used to probably not Mm -hmm. i think in some respects it's the right time to sort of i mean i'm sure I, i haven't spoken to ed i don't think anyone has as yet around this he'll probably keep a low profile for a while but when he does talk about it he'll have a good story to tell he'll have a great story to tell around the 2019 world cup win some tough decisions were needed to be made there not least around how they got joffre archer into the squad and they managed that process seamlessly it's often forgotten that chris jordan was in the 17 player squad initially giving archer his best friend in cricket 
alongside him in that initial phase against Pakistan. I thought that was quite clever. Yeah. The fact that Adil Rashid got brought back into Test cricket from seemingly nowhere, and that was uh, via the instigation of of, uh, of Ed Smith when Adil Rashid was at that stage a white ball only player at Yorkshire. The fact that the T20 team for England's gone from strength to strength and. It would be reasonable to say that they'll be, you know, uh, if not the favourite to win that comp later in the year, the second favourite alongside India. And yes, whilst his copybook might be blotted somewhat by the incident with Moen Ali earlier this year where he asked him to stay on and that looked bad, I think there was like heaps of context around that as well in that from mm. Smith's perspective, he was looking to give Moen Ali another opportunity at test level. It wasn't as though he was trying to fuck him over. It, it, his, his heart was in the right place. It just didn't tally with what we'd heard from them before in terms of the messaging around recuperation and rest and so on. So, yeah, three years, almost exactly three years in the job he started around this time in, in 2018. And, and I've also missed out that Joss Butler wouldn't be playing test cricket if not for Ed Smith. I, I remember talking to Joss about this towards the end of 2017 when he was left out of the Ashes squad and he was already kind of thinking, well, maybe that's done. And now, uh, now, right now, he'd be seen as one of the most important players for England in the longest form of the game. He never would have had that second major opportunity if not for Smith saying that, look, yes, we know you're playing IPL, but you're too good to be completely taken off the table as far as Test cricket's concerned. It's as though like Glenn Maxwell needs someone like Ed Smith playing a, a similar role in Australian cricket at some point, but that's a whole different conversation. So, yeah, an, an interesting era uh, for English cricket uh, coming up that they won't have a chairman of selectors, which is unusual. It feels, Jeff, to me, I, I can't think of another time when all that power would have been concentrated uh, in the hands of the coach, who now will get the team he wants. Chris Silverwood across the board, he will be deciding who is in the squads. Uh, so, And I suppose Ashley Giles, as the big boss of England cricket, will have some influence on that alongside the scouts in terms of the, the lines of accountability. But, yeah, it's going to be Chris Silverwood's team uh, alongside Joe Root and alongside Owen Morgan. And, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch how it functions without having that, that central point of accountability on the selection front as there has been forever and a day. I liked... Ed Smith, as a selector, you know, there are there are things you can criticise him for, but I, I like the fact that he was um, forthright and didn't bullshit, generally actually said why he was doing something and had interesting ideas. I thought it was, it was a very creative move to put him in that job in the first place. It was basically – and that was – was that Andrew Strauss's call? When yeah, and it was still while Strauss was there at the ECB. So, mm. yeah, early twenty around this time, around March, yeah. April, twenty eighteen. So, it was basically saying, look, selection has been done in a pretty stale way for a long period of time. So let's, you know, let's get someone who's got a different perspective on it to do it. And that was the reason that Butler came back into the, that team. That's the reason that Adil Rashid came back into that side, that there was less of a hang-up on the conventional thinking that uh, we must do things this way. You know, to get in the test team, you must go and play in the county champo and you must take this many wickets or make this many runs, you know, whatever it was, rather than just identifying who were your best players and then making sure that they could have an opportunity. Who were players who were special, you know, who could bring something special to a team? And that's what has made England actually an exciting team to watch over the last few years, which for a very, very long time was not the case. That England test side that put together that ridiculous run chase against Pakistan, you know, six months ago, that's not something that an England test team would have done a few years before that. You know, that was the product of, of being liberated. So... I think it's an odd call, really. I mean, the Moen situation in India was massively 
botched, but that was less. It was less botched asking him to stay on than it was botched not maybe getting on the front foot to say send him home earlier after he'd had COVID and all of that in Sri Lanka. At that point, they weren't going to use him because he he hadn't been able to do training and so on. Maybe that was the time to be more flexible and let him get home then. And and it was a bad move to bring him back for five T20s that he didn't play. So, you know, there were a range of, of... botch-adjacent sort of actions around that. In tough times too. I mean, it's worth remembering that trying to make these calls, not on the fly, like they had plenty of time before they went to Sri Lanka and India to deliberate over how it might work, but it's never been like that before, going abroad in such a way that you need to quarantine and not Mm. just a long tour, but a long tour involving multiple different changes of format. Like it was bound to fuck up at some stage and it's just, you know, it's more acute because it's Moeen. And on the back of the COVID case, I mean, mm. and, and that his career is in a state of flux. It just highlighted all the potential problems. They all seem to seem to coalesce around one player. Um, but yeah, and, and to an extent, I suppose Johnny Bairstow too. And I get the frustration around Butler uh, being brought home uh, at the start of the India Test series. There, there are other parts to this, sure, but taken as a whole, they to an extent were flying blind. No one has tried something like this before. How could they have? And, and nobody knows that Bairstow's going to come back and make three ducks in four innings and yeah, exactly. you know, have an absolute horror because you don't necessarily predict that. So I, th- I think it's a bit odd, really, moving on from what has been a really successful era and a relatively short span of time that he's been in the job. And I really don't like countries concentrating all of that in the hands of the coach. I don't think that works in terms of the relationship between players and coaches, because how can you, how can you be frank as a player with a coach? You know, how can you uh, push back against their methods if you need to, or be vulnerable, be open with them about problems you might be having, if you think that they're also the person who's going to make the decision about whether you get the chop for the next tour. Uh, I think it just goes back to that uh, that older style of things of you know don't let on, don't let on if you've got a problem, don't let on if you're struggling mentally, because you know, they might decide, oh, well, we don't want this guy on the next trip because he's a liability. A coach can't concentrate on coaching their own team and also be across everything else that's going on that's needed to to make those decisions. So I think they can have input on selection, but having the coach as the sole squad selector is a disaster waiting to happen, I think. Yeah, interesting perspective around the mental health side of things when needing to confide in the coach. I suppose it's a... It's, there's no science to this. I mean, there's no perfect science, rather. It, it's, a, it's a touch thing, isn't it? And I suppose they mm-hmm. think that Silverwood has the skills to, to manage both sides of that. Uh, time will tell. But, yeah, it, it'll be more in keeping with, I suppose, the football tradition where with football, it's, you know, the football we grew up with, there was a match committee, but, but the coach ran the show in terms of who was picked to play uh, on a Saturday afternoon. And certainly that's the case with association football where, where the manager does dictate terms in terms of squad selection so yeah interesting and I think that Ed will have more to say I mm. mean I expect that he'll write a book but the man- the manager's only picking from their own squad you know like a football manager's picking from their bunch of players they're picking an 11 from their bunch and a bench but they're not picking from hundreds of players across the country who are all playing at the same time yeah I, you know, I suppose so I, I, but I mean I, I guess more in terms of the idea that even international football if you want to extrapolate it to that that there is mm. a there is a person who lives and dies by the results of the team and they are responsible for essentially assembling the team as well. Uh, again, it's not mm. none of this is perfect. It's just kind of the way these things have, um, have played out. But, uh, yeah, I think it'll be interesting when Ed writes a book about this. He's a prolific author, of course, and surely he'd be, he'd be mad not to document. I'm sure he's kept a diary and uh, when he sits down to 
to document his time as the uh, chief selector of England in such a fascinating period, starting with them beating India 4-1 into the World Cup year. Everything that happened around 2019, extraordinary year of cricket over here. Mm. Then last year, the COVID year, and I suppose the uh, the dismount's not a great one with what happened in India, but nonetheless, it'll it'll make for a great story, and I'm sure he'll tell it in an evocative way as he always does. So um, yes, Ed Smith, no more, but uh, I'm sure that there's going to be um, more of a contribution from him than simply this. The Commonwealth Games. To move on to our next topic, that's been pretty much locked in. So England qualify as hosts, along with Australia, India, New Zealand, Pakistan, South Africa, and interestingly, one country from the Caribbean, because the West Indies can't compete as a conglomerate, it'll be one of the Caribbean nations, um, which will be decided by a a sort of process later, and there'll also be another qualifier, a qualifying event that determines an an eighth participant. So you'll have eight teams playing T20 cricket over the course of about, about eight days to see who gets through. Yeah, not perfect, but it was never going to be. And following on from our conversation around the Olympic Games last week, because of the way the West Indies are set up, uh, there is no ideal answer to this. A number of West Indies countries were involved in the 1998 Commonwealth Games at Kuala Lumpur where cricket was a feature and it didn't work because they were so understaffed that they couldn't quite get the balance right. So I suppose the difference between 1998 and 2022 is that we do see a greater concentration of talent in the bigger countries, which might mean that it ends up being, and I'm I'm, I'm not thinking this through fully, but it could easily be a case of, say, Barbados against Jamaica in a final to decide who gets to carry Mm. the flag, as it were. So, And in the other part of this, it is an ideal, is per Hypercourse's analysis yesterday on Twitter, the qualifying event to determine the other place will be a bunch of countries that have not played any T20 cricket for two years. And that goes back to that enduring problem about who's been able to play uh, through COVID and, and who hasn't been given uh, that opportunity so that qualifying event will be held in January 2022 ahead of the tournament in July through to uh, the middle of August and that's super exciting because it's going to be on free-to-air television over here and it it reinforces that Birmingham 2022 will be the first major multi-sport event in history to award more medals to women than men so a point of history there for the women's cricketers getting their chance on this stage for the first time. County cricket, you have been immersed in this. You've been lolling around in a nice hot bath of county cricket, <laughs> just 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 pouring streams of it all over yourself and, and soaking it all up. Go I, on. I have. Tell me I, what's happening. I have. Well, what, just jump in as and when. How's that sound? I'll, I'll just start talking and you can go, that's interesting. Here's what I think about that. <laughs> um, it's been since 1988, as Shield Berry's written a couple of times, uh, since a player has made 1,000 first-class runs before the end of May in England. Mm. And owing to the fact that we've got, I think, eight rounds of the championship before the end of May this year, there's never been a better opportunity to do exactly that. And David Bettingham made 257 for Durham against Derbyshire in a high-scoring draw at Chesterfield Street uh, last weekend. He's up to 565 already. So he made Mm -hmm. 257 and 57 and made 100 last week as well. So he's over halfway there in the space of three rounds. So he's a a really good shot for that. I did hear that Hasib Hamid had been doing some big things. Um, yes, well, that's that the other. Well, in terms of, well, I suppose that that um, occupation that Bettingham showed over a couple of days at Durham that was taken to the next level by Hasib Hamid. So, for those who haven't followed his story, after being released by Lancashire at the end of 2019, of course, played uh, a handful of Test matches uh, against India in 2016-17. Terrible few seasons after that, completely went off a cliff and not picked him up. And he faced 635 balls on the weekend, um, 111 in the first. 
first innings, he made in 304 deliveries. Then they followed on. And following on, he made 114 not out off 323. So he kept a very similar tempo in both innings. Um, he had um, Ben Slater with him, who made 114 uh, not out up the other end, and they were able to save the game, not losing a wicket in the second innings. But yeah, 635 balls, Jeff, according to... The data that's been collected, of course, ball-by-ball ball data is a little bit sketchy the further you go back. So mm-hmm. it's, it's probably not the, the longest a player has batted for in terms of balls faced in the, in the history of the championship, but it is as far as the, the, the records longest that we do have record. at our disposal. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, if, if it's the longest on record, it's a record. If you've broken the yes. record, you've broken the, the recorded <laughs> number of things. You know, The recorded number is that no one has run 100 metres faster than nine point six, seven seconds or whatever it is. But there may be someone who's done it faster, maybe. They just really wanted a sausage roll or something, but it's not recorded. Yeah, I, I, I suppose so. What, what the really tantalising part of all this is that, I mean, Twin Tons, Haseeb Hamid, has played international cricket. We know how talented he is. Uh, I suppose uh, there is an Ashes tour at the end of the year. It's a long, long way to go for him, given he, he's kind of restarting his career. But the fact that he was able to bat for that amount of time shows that his uh, mental application is still very much there. The third game in Group 1 was Essex losing to Warwickshire at Edgbaston, Jeff. Essex don't lose. It's been two years since they've lost and they had Peter Siddle playing and they, they still weren't able to protect 256 in the fourth innings. A university student called Rob Yates made 120 not out mm. for Warwickshire in, in the fourth innings, which I thought was quite nice. Earlier in the game, Alistair Cook, 47 from 46 balls. We could see a, a comeback for Cookie as a white ball specialist or something like that based on that tempo. In terms of that thousand run season uh, or thousand run start to the season we were referring to before, Adam Lythe uh, is on 488. He hit 104 across two innings in a low scorer against Sussex where Yorkshire were able to win, but I don't think we should write him off completely. Don Bess took six for in the fourth innings to make sure they got over the line. Staying in group three, Northants chased down 355 on the final afternoon with just three wickets down against Glamorgan. Dennis Lilly. Exactly, Dennis Lilly. Three wickets down and uh, one of the most satisfying names to stay in county cricket. Ricardo Vazconcelos made uh, 185 not out and steered them to victory. Lanks pumped Kent by an innings despite a Daniel Bell Drummond ton. Jeff, I know you're always watching to see how DBD goes. They're mm-hmm. leading that group Lancashire Matt Parkinson after his ball of the century last week took a seven for in the fourth innings this week so he's very much on the radar at the moment earlier in that game Lanks got to 525 courtesy of Luke Wood and Danny Lamb they both made centuries at number eight and number nine so Kent were essentially scuppered by that uh, on the first and second day in the game I was doing at Lords, Middlesex absolutely steamrolled Surrey. Um, first game they've won for the season. Peter Hanscom made a duck and was bowled by Reese Topley. Beautiful delivery. Reese Topley went nuts at the start. But <laughs> he had the Midas touch like I've rarely seen before in professional cricket. He made like half a dozen bowling changes where it immediately immediately brought a wicket. So he's just got the touch as skipper. He turned 30 today, actually, Pete. Uh, nice. So right in the, in, in the most productive part of his career, I'd imagine. But yeah, Rory Burns came back on the third morning, on 54 not out, Surrey weren't far away from taking the lead and maybe, you know, maybe setting Middlesex a tough fourth innings 
uh, chase, but in the end they were bold. They, t- they lost seven for 25 on the third morning and Burns was the first to go. First ball of the day. And how's this? There were three wickets on the first ball of the day on Saturday and we got Andrew Sampson to work it out. Mm-hmm. By his calculations, it's a one in every 22 and a half year occurrence where three wickets will fall on the first ball of a county championship day. So he wasn't able to work out the last time it happened, but based on the probability of, mm-hmm. of, that, of it playing out uh, in that way. Staying in Group 2, Hampshire and Gloucestershire were, um, were ended up drawing after this like heroic final wicket stand. The county championship is so good at the moment. Dom Goodman at number 11 with the number 10, Josh Shaw. They batted for 73 minutes uh, to hold off uh, Hampshire and, and split the difference there down at the Rose Bowl. Just for a second there, I, I thought you said John Goodman and I just had a great <laughs> visual of, of, of the, the big boy from so many uh, great cinema roles just just really sticking in there at number yeah, 10. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Roseanne's up the other end. Um, so. <laughs> Yelling racist <laughs> abuse at people. John Goodman, he, he had a baseball bat in um, Big Little Yes, Mexico, yes, he? he did. So, you know, you could, you could pretty the, easily copy that the wrong, When he smashes the up the wrong car. That's a, that's a great. That's with the um, the golf club, isn't it? When he, oh, is he smashes up the wrong car, still it, yeah. it, it all works. It all works. Uh, Craig Overton, thirty five point four overs, nineteen maidens, eight for sixty four. Not too dissimilar to what Ooh. Tim Murta took in the uh, in the Middlesex game I mentioned before. So he's yeah. uh, he was player of the season last year. Overton, you wouldn't count him out to come to Australia again. And he's had such gotta a good go to couple India. of years. Got I, think to go. I think he's got to come to Australia at the very least. Maybe India as well. Um, and that rounds it out. So Somerset are back on the winner's list after losing last week at home for the first time in, I think, like mm. 27 years to Gloucestershire. They're finally back where we expect them to be. The format's working really well. It's because um, they have so many pavilions. Like, that really yes. gives the, the players a sense of confidence. <laughs> when they look around that ground and they're like, my God, it's easy to get something named after you here. All I need to do is make a decent 30 and I'll probably get a gate named after me or a, the Garfield Sobers waiting area at Trent it's, it's, Bridge. It's, it's actually where Middlesex are this week, but I'm, I'm not doing the away game. So unfortunately, I, I won't be there. Mm. I'll be enjoying the bank holiday at home. I'll probably be watching the streams though, because I'm not sure if you've had a chance to sort of tuck into them, Jeff. And yeah, I'm really proud of what we're doing at Lords. But across the county, I, d- I did watch yours for a while the other day. I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to get a big head. But, yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just really good. I mean, it's like across. Uh, you know, there were three games that went to the wire on Sunday afternoon on the, on the final day, and like. It's like it's kind of like free to air television. If you've got the YouTube app on your TV, suddenly you're bouncing from sort of like Wantage Road to the Rose Bowl to Edgbaston, watching three close results all at the same time. I mean, I know we talk a lot about the lack of free to air television coverage of cricket in England or have over the last twenty years or so. But by virtue of it being on YouTube and everybody kind of having the ability to access YouTube, it feels like a watershed season in terms of this free to access mm-hmm. ability. So we'll keep an eye on the county championship as we go through the season. But yeah. After three rounds, I think the new format's working really well. Lots of close results and and plenty of teams who could still make it into that that top group and a, a lot of cricket between now and the end of May when they break for the white ball stuff. Well, you mentioned a bank holiday. What about a Bangladesh holiday? Uh, that's what you could have after the thrilling draw between the Bangers and the Langers, the uh, Sri Lankans um, at Palakele, I suppose. Um, it was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
which, you know, up in the hinterland, the lovely spot up in the hills, Bangladesh 541 for seven declared and then Sri Lanka making 648 for eight declared and then Bangladesh 100 for two. So, you know, it wasn't a lot in it for the bowlers. Um, <laughs> well, how about the what- overs? What, 173 overs till the first declaration, 179 till the second declaration. I mean, talk about grinding each other into the ground. It, I mean, yeah, it was a road and all the rest, but but still, it, they, I mean, there wasn't a lot of enterprising mm. batting apart from Tammy Mikbal, who started the test with 90 off 100 balls. And that was without a doubt that the sort of highlight in terms of scoring rates. Yeah, our scoring rates were not great. Um, but overall, you know, as you look back, as you don't actually have to watch the match and just look at the figures, Dimuth Karunaratna, yes. the Sri Lankan pool party maestro, the uh, the man of the moment, the guy who is just a, just a sort of, you know, dig in and, and knock it around a bit sort of opener for so long and then suddenly became the captain when they needed one. They went to South Africa, won that test series there 2-0. He hadn't played a one-day game in four years, made him captain for the World Cup. Why not? Got in there, started beating teams, creating havoc, had the pool party, beat England, had a great old time and, and now Karuna Ratner's ticked another thing off, a double ton in test cricket. He His highest score was 196 before that. He was one of those poor players with, you know, like Faf Duplessis and so on who've got their highest score in, in the 190s um, and he, he finally got past the 200 mark, ended up with 244 took 437 balls to do it. You know, it wasn't beautiful. It's a bit painful, but he did it. So for that reason, obviously enough, Dimuth Karunaratna, our CBUS super performer of the week. Be like Dimuth. Don't throw away your innings when you retire. Visit cbussuper.com.au slash the final word if you want to see our faces on a superannuation page. Very comforting, very soothing. You can get a PDS to find out if CBUS Super is right for you. And you can remember the past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Dan and Jaya De Silva made a ton as Dan well. Dan and Jaya! <laughs> we're obliged to do it that way for the rest of his career. <laughs> yeah, um, Jason Holder style. Nazmal Hussain got a ton for Bangladesh. Monimal Haq got a ton as well. And Tammy McBell nearly did. So, you know, at least the batsman had some fun. I think the Mominal Huck's important. I mean, new captain, 11th test century, but given that responsibility and, and kind of owning it, not brand new, but he's not been in the role for a, for a long time. And Nazmal Hussain, 22 years old, uh, left-handed opener, good prospect, uh, making his mm-hmm. first test century. So, yeah, I mean, not a lot in that test. The, the bit that George Norman loved from it, though, was this, and he sent us a note about Saif Hussain. So <laughs> Saif Hussain was dismissed for a duck from the last ball of the second over of the match. He then had okay. to watch... And field for 350 overs while 1,181 runs were scored to complete the first innings for both sides. Then he went into bat in the second innings for Bangladesh where he made one before being dismissed. And George reckons this must be the record for either the match runs scored between innings as overs sat out as that mm-hmm. after you know one run in mm-hmm. 1,289 for the entire game. He describes it as a, a reverse bannerman of sorts, which seems about mm-hmm. right to me. Yeah, th- this, one, this one's hard to stat search but there's got to be a way I, I might have a look at this during the week so because there are some famous examples of you know the players who missed out on absolute roads you know the sort of the matches where four of the top five made hundreds and someone yes. else made a duck <laughs> kind of deal so you know there are some famous examples but there might be some less famous ones as well shall we uh shall we do a, a little thing we haven't done for a while oh i think we should Satchin. Sachin, 
Satchin. Take it away, Jeff. Happy birthday, Satchin, but it's different this week because it was actually Satchin's birthday. The last time it was Satchin's birthday, we had Damien Fleming, who uh, shares the same birthday, doing a live show talking about that birthday. But what we thought we would do this time around is that normally Happy Birthday Satchin is about the people Satchin wishes happy birthday to. This week, it's actually Happy Birthday Satchin. It is about the people who wished happy birthday to Satchin. Some of them are on his birthday spreadsheet. Some of them hope to be on his birthday spreadsheet. We shall see how this pans out in the 12 months ahead. Can I offer a view off the top here? Mm -hmm. I don't think he got the birthday love that he deserved. I mean, sure, the usual suspects are all there and we'll rattle through a few of them, but for a bloke who's pumping out a solid 100 birthday tweets a year, just based Mm. purely on a Google search or a Twitter search of his handle and birthday... Yeah. There wasn't a hundred blue tick responses. I'll give you that for nothing. Wow. I mean, yes, there's Virat Coley talking of one of the greatest to ever play the game, an inspiration to many. King legend Rahul, mm-hmm. who went on to also call Coley a legend. He loves that um, loves that name, KL. Mm-hmm. Shubham Gill, Sarav Ganguly, you know, great player, super teammate, wishing you a healthy life, so on and so forth. Mitch McLennigan, did, sure, um, I'm, I'm did, sure he did Sarav Ganguly just chuck in an advertising <laughs> bit for some, <laughs> so, some like hand sanitizer wipes that he was flogging like, at the end of that tweet? Or not? Yeah, I, I, we mentioned earlier Karunia had written a scathing piece uh, and, and with Sarav Ganguly right at the front of that, plugging his um, face masks through the middle of this crisis to try and move a few more units, as they say. Not a great look when he's the boss of the BCCI. I'm sure that um, I'm sure that Sachin would have enjoyed getting a message from Mitch McGlennigan, who's probably the sort of guy who did get a happy birthday from Sachin through the mm-hmm. year. His message was simple. Because well, he played for Mumbai, he didn't did. he, That's Mitch right. McGlennigan? Yeah, so that, 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 the, pretty the much if connection. You- yeah, if you're on the MI roster, you get one. And if you're a sort of current Indian player, you probably get one. And if you're a past Indian player, you've got to be of a certain calibre to get one. And if you're an international player, you've got to be like up right up the top of the tier to get one. That's how it works. It was such a Kiwi message too. Hope it's a mint year ahead, said Mitch to Sachin. A mint year, I love it. Ravi Shastri went way over the top, as you'd expect, talking about a living legend in the house and, you know, the usual Shastri bullshit. Uh, Rishabh, Rishabh Punt, Chris Gale. Aleem Dar, his Twitter account is umpire Aleem Dar underscore. No blue tick, but mm-hmm. it's definitely him. He's got like 500,000 followers. Happy birthday, Master Blaster. Keeps it simple, Aleem Dar. Brett yeah. Lee noted that he's only got a few more birthdays to hit his half century. Good, good use oh, of that. Uh, good cricket reference there. Well done, Brett. Yeah, really, uh, yeah. been a good innings. Think so, about that so one, Brett. That's a good one. He subtracted the age from fifty and realised there wasn't yeah. any numbers in between. Um, no. He'll be a federal member of parliament soon, Brett. Lee. Work that out. Uh, Ashwin, isn't Viv Richards the master blaster? Well, this so, is it. A number of people have referred to him as the master blaster here, which seemed odd to isn't me. Isn't there room right. for only one master blaster? By definition, if you're the master blaster, you are the ultimate blaster. The yeah, blaster who yeah. teaches others how to blast. Yeah, well, we Everyone see else is a student well, blaster. Yeah, there's, there's a big Bollywood actor who also called in the master blaster here. Mm-hmm. Ashwin found time. I mean, obviously, it's been a tough time for Ashwin, but he found time to uh, say, God bless you to uh, Sachin, who then responded uh, in video form, sporting a grey beard. And Sachin said, thank you, everyone, mm-hmm. for your warm wishes. It made my day special. I am very grateful indeed. Take care and stay safe. <laughs> Very good. Very good. I wonder if you could go like full Gandalf beard, you know, and just start getting around in a big hat. It might be the next step for him. I mean, we always know him as this kind of clean-cut figure, but maybe a mangy sort of COVID beard might be be on the horizon given he's already got the ball rolling with the stubble at the moment. Not too It's all the rage. (laughs) It's all the rage. Yeah, get get involved. It's absolutely disgusting. But, you know, that's what happens. Well, happy birthday, Sachin. Happy birthday, Sachin. Um, now a little uh, 
a little Bannerman and we're done. So this is uh, the second time in as many weeks from England. This came from the National Village Cup. A Bannerman, if you're not familiar, is a person scoring uh, 67.35% or more of the team's runs in an innings where everybody else was dismissed. Oxford Downs made 420 for three in 40 overs. Light it up. Which is a bad start. Like, that probably means you're going to get bowled out for not many because, you know, frankly... Who could be fucked? Like, you've just been absolutely smacked around for 40 overs. Tom Costley, 148, not out of 61 balls. The Baldwins CC, uh, the club that we're interested in, not the Baldwins, not not Alex, James, and the other ones I can't remember. <laughs> Stephen? Stephen? Sam and the other one. Yeah. Uh, there's a... Uh, it's no Sam, no Sam Baldwin. That's the Daddos I'm thinking of, I think. Lachlan. Uh, Daddos. Lock, yeah. Cameron. Cameron. Cameron, Lachlan and... Andrew. Uh, Andrew. Yeah, the, the, we can we can rattle off the Dados more readily than we can the Baldwin's. If you've if you've never heard of, there's a podcast called Imaginary Advice, which is extremely funny. And one of them, the episodes are all completely different. They're, they're creative episodes, but one of them is a fake podcast called the Baldwin Cast, which is all about the careers of the Baldwin's. Um, which is just this one guy who's really bad at podcasting trying to work out how to make a podcast about his enthusiasm, the Baldwin's. I, I recommend it um, in, in the context of, of this, of the Baldwin's CC. So C. Taylor, no first name, maybe it's Claire Taylor. Um, who made all those runs? For- I think we established based on the social interaction. Someone said that, and we established that it wasn't. Well, why okay. would it be? Why would Claire Taylor be turning out in the champion that she was and is? Yeah, but how good would it be if she Village did? Cup. <laughs> yes. How good would it be if she was making a bannerman <laughs> for Bolden CC in the National Village Cup? Let me dare it a dream. Okay, uh, Claire Taylor. We're going to assume comes in at one for one, and is the last player out when they're all out for forty four. They get bowled out in 13 and a half overs. They lose by 376 runs. But Claire Taylor, presumably, makes 34 out of the 44 runs in 41 balls, hitting six boundaries. Eight other runs came off the bat. So all up, that's 77.3% of the runs to, presumably, Claire Taylor. Uh, Thanks to a range of people who sent that card in. They are keen for Bannermans, our listeners. They are absolutely scouring the scorecards week by week. I found this. Yeah, I love this. I love the idea that Declan Lawler, Andrew Collin and Matt Jones all got in touch in the space of about half an hour. So I don't know how they happened upon this, but... I'm glad they did. So that's consecutive weekends where we've had – consecutive Sundays, indeed, we've had bannermans in, in English cricket. So you keep sending them, we'll keep reading them out. And, and the bonus info via Matt is that Taylor kept for the 40 overs beforehand. So um, so Claire was um, had the gloves for 40 overs, then then batted for 41 in her 77.3%. I think that's it for the show this week. The final word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Thanks to Karunia Keshav for her time off the top of the show. Thanks to – Seabus Super, and uh, to the Wisden Cricket Almanac for helping the show along. Thanks to everyone on Patreon, the lifeblood of the show. It wouldn't exist without you. If you want to join up and play Nerd Pledge, patreon.com slash the final word. Could not be any easier than that. The show is edited by Dave Collins and by Ashton Farrow on the videos. Uh, it is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have other shows. You might enjoy listening to them. 
And those are all the things that I need to say at the end of a show. I think, I think that's right. I, I was waiting for you to say goodbye to everyone, but why don't I do it instead? Uh, thanks for watching if you're watching on YouTube. Thanks for listening, everyone, on the feed. As Jeff says, patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you want to be part of what we're doing, especially on the weekend show, that's when we'll be back next uh, to do Nerd Pledge on Storytime. That show, I should say, Jeff, listening back uh, as, we, as I do occasionally to our programs, is going very well right now. So if you're not a, a Storytime listener, um, become one and, and uh, participate via the Patreon page. Uh, that's it, I think. And if you're listening in India, of course, uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope everything um, is going okay for your families and uh, that things get better as soon as they can. Bye for now. Yes, indeed. See you later. Love your face. So you know what I meant here. I had to go.